Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, the future of corporate water stewardship, we conclude our four-part series on the past, present, and future of private sector water stewardship with Glenn Lowe, co-founder of the Earth Genome. Glenn tells me his history of how corporate water stewardship has evolved, whether there's a next frontier beyond the watershed for these efforts, and how companies should recruit other companies to adopt science-based targets for water. Today, I'm really excited to, to interview Glenn Lowe about business sustainability, especially in, with respect to water. Glenn is co-founder of the Earth Genome. The Earth Genome is an environmental data nonprofit that's based in California. They work with governments, they work with lots of big companies, they work with water boards, mainly on the topic of water and a lot of different aspects of water, which we may touch on today. Before that, Glenn was at Blue Sky, where he consulted with dozens of the biggest companies and the biggest water users in the corporate space on environmental, social, governance type projects. And so today we're going to talk with Glenn about the future of corporate water stewardship. We've had three modules in the past on the evolution of it, and now we're going to look beyond and, and ask Glenn some questions about that. So, Glenn, welcome, and thank you for joining. Well, thanks for having me. Excited to be here, and love the fact that you're doing this. It's just great to have it codified. Great. All right, so let's dig in. So talk to me about the evolution of corporate water stewardship. I think we talked about this before, but the you know, story is quite long, if you think about it from the very beginning. And then I'm going to ask you a few questions about what you think the big events were that changed the course of that evolution. So just tell me your perspective on how companies have approached water and how that's changed. Yeah, I think going back maybe 20 years, you know, kind of year 2000, there was little attention to it, frankly. And that showed up in the lack of discussion in environmental social governance type place. But it also really, most of the operations of course, everyone has had water operations for quite some time, but it wasn't really until like the mid-2000s when people really started talking about water footprinting that became quite popular, both from a scientific standpoint and a corporate standpoint. There's a whole host of water footprint assessments in the late 2000s. That really triggered what I think is the action in response to the footprinting. Step two is really this, what I call replenish and water positive actions. Mm-hmm. So people finding projects finding ways to improve the situation. That's really been going on for the last maybe decade or so. A number of companies have blazed that path. I think what really is kind of the step three and where people are going are what I call science-based targets. So the ability to apply real science to understanding the implications of those projects. I think it's also leading to kind of a fourth step, which is what I'll generically call seeing watershed level impacts. I have a lot of thoughts on this, why that's necessary. And then fifth, perhaps the most difficult, I would put into solving the system. And that's challenging because through that progression of footprinting to replenish to science-based targets to watershed to solving the system, you're going from inside the company to outside the company, expanding in geographic scope and hydrologic scope and correspondingly increasing in scope in terms of level of difficulty and who you need to engage as stakeholders. And as we know, you know, I've been working on water issues and consulting the companies for 15 plus years. 
the harder it is, the less likely it is for them to do it. Mm-hmm. And especially not just difficulty, but the ability to capture the value of the actions that they take. Because it's one thing for it to be hard, but if it's hard and everyone benefits, not so much just you, kind of what I call diffuse benefit, then there's little incentive to do it. So that progression, that evolution toward those five steps, it's been tough because people see it as hard and not just them get to benefits. That's really interesting. I like that, those five steps. I think that summarizes the path quite nicely. And and tell me about, as we were talking, I was thinking about relevance to the shareholders as it moves from, like you said, from, from projects that are mostly within the four walls that are relevant to bottom line, no matter what anyway, to things like in your fourth and fifth step where who's that benefit? Does it benefit other companies? Does it potentially benefit other companies that are competitors? How do we frame this for the shareholders so that it's relevant to the company's mission too? Yeah, that's been an age-old question. And unlike carbon and energy, for example, where the cost savings from energy reduction directly hit the bottom line, water is harder. In many places in the world, as you know, John, water is mispriced. It's essentially free for most intensive purposes. And so cost savings by using less water rarely resonates. And that's been a challenge. I remember doing a number of projects for companies on this exact topic. And I think there's a few ways of tackling it. Obviously, disruptions, catastrophic disruptions, so tapping into resilience often is helpful. That really translates into moving locations of where you source. A lot of people sometimes do that, but they prefer not to because it's hard and it's costly. Other people also are trying to tie in multiple benefits. So not just water, but benefits to carbon, benefits to waste, benefits to energy. So stacking the benefits, not just water cost savings. So that's really quite popular as well. But I also think that water resonates with people and communities at a visceral level, right? When you save CO2 equivalents, you know, a car, ton of carbon, that's hard to imagine because it's invisible and people don't see carbon every day. Everybody interacts with water every day. So yeah. its social impact, I think, is really important. And I've seen most leading corporate water people, they talk not just in gallons or liters or acre feet, they talk really in communities and ability to provide water and have access to water. And what I think my five steps might gloss over a little bit is it feels a little water quantity centric. But when we talk about water quality, when we talk about wash, water access, sanitation, hygiene, you're really touching on social issues that almost kind of defy quantification from a dollar perspective or a financial perspective, but it really has to do with communities and livelihood. Okay. So Love that answer. Let's think about those communities. And let's think of those about those communities also from a business perspective. They could be customers, right? So like, is there a next frontier where companies work not just outside of the four walls, but they work outside of their watersheds where they're producing things? And why would they do that? Yeah. Well, John, I wish what you're saying is true. I haven't seen it systematically. It may be one-off, but you're right you almost always go to materiality, which almost always starts with where are my factories? Where do I source? What are those watersheds? What are their risks? What's my ability to influence? So it's very inward looking on where I source and get water from. But you're right. Most of these products, 
with the global economy we have today, most of these products are transported. Now, I get obviously a lot of companies, food and beverage in particular, they like to source close to where it's consumed. That makes a lot of obvious sense from a shipping perspective. But the unfortunate reality is if you take just a risk perspective, if you take just a material perspective, we may only be operating in the watersheds that are not the easiest to solve. <laughs> so right. my point of view is there may be watersheds that companies are not in where we could have demonstrably better impact. Mm-hmm. Like if you could get a 5x return in a watershed, even if that watershed is not one you operate in, why are we not considering that? And unfortunately, I think the case you're making and the case I'm making, it's hard to make that case internally to companies because every CFO says, but we don't operate there or we may not have as many customers there as we have in some other geography. So it's a hard sell sometimes. Right. Interesting. Okay, let's move on to another question. So you mentioned science-based targets before as step three, I think. So companies are setting watershed targets now, which I think is exciting. And there are some leaders in this space. Question is, how do we enroll other companies that aren't quite there yet? How do we get them involved? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me give a little bit of context and then I'll try and answer your question directly. Like you said, there are a number of companies who are doing what are sometimes called context-based water targets, sometimes called science-based water targets. There's a little bit gray area between the two. Mm -hmm. And you're right, they're the usual suspects and it's limited a fraction of companies are doing these science-based targets. I think this question of enrollment is really key because right now it feels too hard. And most companies, if they're fortunate, they're large enough that they have hydrologists on staff or science on staff, people who can actually do the science required for science-based targets. Unfortunately, in most cases, that's not true. And so most companies lack the competency to do it. And they also lack a relatively straightforward methodology. So the science-based target networks, I think what's critical about that is a repeatable methodology made simple. And there are so many complicating factors on how to do science-based targets. Is it for surface water? Is it groundwater? Is it quantity? Is it quality? Is it for sanitation? Like there's almost unlimited options of how you can set the targets. But the beauty of a methodology is repeatability. It's the ability to see that other people have done that process. The process is getting streamlined over time. Best practices are getting learned and captured and codified. People don't need to repeat any mistake ever again. I like to think that for those who were the first, it maybe took them a year or two years. As the science-based target networks and the methodology gets developed, it will take half that time. And one day it will take a quarter of that time. And so that Working the equation where it's easier to do, faster to do, better to do, because you understand the nuances and don't have to make mistakes, I think that's the key. I think what will make it and make it continue to be a little bit harder to do enrollment is the value. Again, you can set science-based targets and you can try and achieve those targets. And I think you can get real value from it, from a, we're not just doing replenish, we're making things better. But is that science-based targets monetizable? Do you get financial value from a science-based target versus just doing replenished projects? I think that's a question that's going to play out over the next five years or so. 
stick into SBT and to the science-based targets methodology a little bit, not in more detail, but but more, you know, you and I have worked together with corporates on on water, Levi Strauss, with Dow, with others. And there's, I think, a, a difference between understanding what's needed and understanding how to get there. Mm-hmm. The interventions are key. So speak to us a little bit about intervention thinking and how you apply that in your daily job. Yeah. Well, you're nudging on a few really important thoughts here. I'll just tell a quick story. When I was having a conversation with Michael Cabori, who used to be the head of sustainability at Levi Strauss, uh, he's now the head of uh, sustainability at Starbucks. He simply asked me, Glenn, I've saved a billion liters of water at Levi Strauss through a number of programs, innovative programs that they've done. But I keep on getting asked the same question of, so what? (laughs) And it's his version of saying, I saved leaders, but I'm not sure I made anything better. I don't know if that watershed is better off. And this is a very apt and really kind of constructive criticism to a lot of replenished programs. And so tying this here directly to your question, John, intervention methodologies and the approach, in particular using science to do that, helps answer that question directly. Did we make it better? And it doesn't just answer, did we make it better, kind of from a monitoring evaluation standpoint, but it asks and answers questions like, well, where? Where should we focus? How much improvement is needed? What interventions work best? Because no two situations require the same solution. It helps inform who we should work with. So all of the where, how, what, who, why, they're answered by science. Now, we need to make that case more often and more strongly because, again, science-based targets can be hard, but the ideal is to have just the right hammer for just the right nail. And we all know that every watershed is different. We know water issues are hyper-local. And so having science be able to scale and better document, you know, codify why some solution might be better in a specific situation super important. And people don't want to just know risk anymore. They just don't. They want to go beyond risk and they want to go towards solutions. And it was probably around eight, 10 years ago where risk assessment tools came out. But nowadays, I think the new cutting edge is tools that allow you to better understand what solutions are best. That's a good spot for the next question. You kind of beat me to it, which is good. What's the next frontier? Like we've you know, you've got these five steps, and I, and I suspect that it's step five, but maybe there's a step six. What's next? Yeah, it does go back to that original uh, step four and five, watershed impacts and solving the system. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that if a lot of corporations were adopting science-based targets, that works not in isolation, but in collective action, right? Th- there's always been this holy grail of, I'm small in a watershed, I can't have a disproportionate impact because I'm just a disproportionate part of the problem. So the next frontier is really stacking not benefits, but stacking stakeholders, where stakeholders work together to solve systemic challenges. So it's the difference between saying, I'm going to save 50 liters of water here with this ag best management practice. It's different than saying, I'm going to get to a 10% reduction in this watershed. It's instead saying, Let's think about the sustainable development goals, SDG 6 in particular. And if you think about 6.1 drinking water, 6.2 sanitation hygiene, 6.3 wastewater and water quality, I think the next frontier is 
really having corporates partner with local stakeholders, in particular governments, to solve the structural challenges that exist with water. And they have to be in service of delivering 6.1, 6.2, 6.3. Luckily, the world now has, with the SDGs, a commonly agreed upon metric for are we being successful on water? And I haven't even gone over 6.4 and all, all the other sub-indicators, but using those indicators, thinking beyond your individual operations, figuring out what stakeholders you need to work with, looking at the watershed, I think that's where it really needs to go. That's compelling, you know, just to voice that over again, basically saying that the big companies should take the lead on delivering leadership for delivering the SDG 6.123. Yeah. And that will focus them and their activities on problem at the, at the appropriate scale. Yeah, I'll build on what you're saying, John. We need to size the solutions to the size of the problem. Unfortunately, the size of those problems, that's a quote, by the way, I didn't make that up. <laughs> I can't claim that. Unfortunately, knowing the size of the problem, knowing the possible solutions, going back to your intervention question, that's hard to do. I don't know how many companies have come and asked and said, wait, how do I quickly, efficiently know what the problem is in any watershed? Because I can't. Like, I don't know who to ask. Yeah. And it's not like I can exert this huge effort to try and figure it out. I just can't do that on my own. And so the beauty of the SCGs, it helps provide a structure for the indicators that matter. But having local partners, NGOs, boots on the grounds, having any number of those people, they can partner with any company and ease that path. And so pretty much every single water strategy I've helped with a company has a stakeholder component. Right. Who already exists in that space that can get me to where I want to go faster and help me answer that obvious question of what are the real problems unique to that watershed? Because no company has the patience to try and figure that out on their own. Very good. Glenn, thanks for, for joining. This has been fun. And I think it's a great cap on the four-part series so that learners and listeners can see the future of corporate water solution. Thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun and thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.